Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, How to Make Your Dreams Come True. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Praise the Lord. Today I'd like to share with you about how to make your dreams come true. And on this tape we'll be talking about the importance of a dream, how how it is a scriptural thing to have a dream, a goal that we are pursuing after. We'll also be talking about the things that Satan does to try and stop our dreams from coming true and, of course, the way to overcome those problems. We'll also be taking some examples from God's Word specifically dealing with Joseph as one of these main examples. Now, the very first thing I want to establish is a definition for the word dreams. Now, I'm not talking about something that happens to us in our subconscious as we sleep. Uh, God can give us a physical dream while we're asleep and reveal a purpose to us, even as he did with Joseph, and we'll be talking about that. But it doesn't have to come that way. When I am speaking of a dream here, I'm simply talking about a goal, a hope, an ambition, or a purpose that we have in our life. And, you know, this is something that we could spend a tremendous amount of time teaching on this one point. I'm just going to simply touch it and go on. But it does need to be emphasized that having a goal for your life is a scriptural principle. The scripture admonishes us to do that. In Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18, the scripture there says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. And there's many other scriptures that go along with this, but there is a scriptural principle that we have to have a goal for our life, a dream, a hope for our life. If we don't set any goals, well, then we're going to hit every one of them. I mean, if you have established nothing as the goal for your life, then you are going to be nothing. Also, Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And if you are thinking that, well, I'll just be whatever, I'm going to let circumstances dictate to me, I am not going to determine my course. I'm just going to simply let it happen, whatever happens. If that's the way that you're approaching life, I promise you, you are going to fail because Satan is out to get you. Satan is coming against you. And unless there is some determination on your part, unless you can grab hold of a, of a goal, a purpose that God has for your life and hang on to it and persevere through problems, you will never see God's best for your life come to pass. And we're going to be using one example of this in Joseph, but there are so many scriptural examples of this that it just simply... Uh, We could spend weeks dealing on this one thing. The same thing happened to every person that God has used. You look at Abraham. God gave him a vision, a goal for his life, told him that he was going to inherit that land. And he had to persevere through all kinds of problems, being fought against by other people, uh, ridicule. He had uh, internal strife within his family. And, of course, the constant discouragement of not seeing any children born to him and his wife, which was a a necessity for God's vision to come to pass. He had to fight against all of this discouragement. And I guarantee you, one of the main things in his life was that he had a promise from God. And it says in Romans chapter 4 that against hope, he believed in hope. That's talking about that when there was no physical human hope, that he still drew on the hope of God by faith. And he let that hope stay alive on the inside of him. Now, I can use the word hope interchangeably with dream because that's really what it is. This scriptural terminology, hope, is a powerful word. In uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, there it says that faith 
is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If we don't have any hope, well, then faith is not going to produce. Faith is actually the power. It's actually what produces the victory, according to 1 John 5, 4, where it says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Faith is the power of God, but hope is what activates our faith. It's like a thermostat on a wall controls the power unit. The power unit actually controls the cooling or the heating system, but the thermostat turns that power unit on and off. And that's the way that hope is. A person that doesn't have any hope is not going to be motivated to use their faith. They may have it, but they've lost their motivation. So hope is very important to faith. It also says in 1 Corinthians 13:3, it says, Now about a faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. If you take that um, statement right there, it, it says that the three most important things are faith, hope, and love. Now, we have been taught quite a bit on love and faith to know that they are very important, but very few people have put hope up there. The Scripture puts hope in there as one of the three heavyweights of all of the things that God has given us. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about how to make your dreams come true. How do you get your hopes, your goals, your dreams, your ambitions that you've received from God, how do you persevere and see those things come to pass? Also, another scripture that I want to use in Hebrews 6.18, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. And to go along with this, Romans chapter 8, verse 24 and 25 says that we are saved by hope. We are saved by something that is not reality, yet it's still off in the future tense. It's still a hope, a dream, a desire. Now, we believe in it. It's an actuality, but it is not physical yet. And he says that we have fled to lay hold upon the hope set before us. In verse 19, it says, Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. It says that this hope is like an anchor of the soul. Boy, that is a powerful picture that that is painting. You know, a ship, it doesn't matter how big or how little the ship is, a ship is going to float on the waves, and you can park it at a dock, but if you don't anchor it, it is eventually going to float away. Well, did you know that there are some of us that God gives a hope to, a dream, a goal, a purpose for our life? You may head in that direction. You may try and stay in that attitude to where you're believing God that the best is going to work out. But circumstances uh, buffet us. They hit us. And if you aren't anchored, I guarantee you're going to move away from that hope. You're going to let that hope become dim on the inside of you. And once hope is stopped, remember that faith is a substance of things hoped for. If Satan can steal your hope, then he can steal away your faith. Nothing's going to work. You're going to see a death to the vision that God has given you. So how do you keep yourself in that position where you're believing God and still persevering against all obstacles? Well, the Bible says that hope is an anchor of the soul. Our soulish man, that's our uh, personality part of us, our intellect, our emotions, our will. That's the part of us that Satan is bombarding through the circumstances and the negative things that come our way. And those things come to steal away the word in our life. And it's our soul that gets discouraged and despaired. Our spirit man is not that way. Our spirit is in union with God and it's always functioning properly. But it's our soulish man that gets drawn away. Well, the Bible specifically says here in Hebrews 6:19 that hope is an anchor of the soul. I remember one time specifically that I was pastoring a little tiny church. I'd come to this town and only had 144 people in the whole town. When I came to this church, there was only about 15 people in the church. And, I mean, it looked like 
that there was no way for me to prosper in that situation. It looked like that those people could never pay me a salary. Of course, I never did take a salary from that church. I, I, I just had God supply it supernaturally. But I'm saying that it looked like there was no possible chance for advancement out of that place. I mean, I went there out of obedience. You could see my heel marks all the way across Texas into Colorado. And when I went there, I knew it was God's will, but it just really did look like that it was going to be the end. And after I got there, I had sacrificed from my perspective so much to come minister to these people. Those people got to criticizing me. There was strife. Uh, I got accused of all kinds of things. They tried to run me out of the church and just on and on. And one time I got into a pity party. And I was waiting on my wife and children to go to bed so that I could just really, I mean, quit. I was going to give up. It wasn't worth it. I sacrificed everything I had to come minister to these people and look at the way they were treating me, etc., etc. And while I was waiting on my wife and kids to go to bed, I was just kind of, you know, biding my time until uh, I could uh, really cut loose and bawl and squall and just tell the Lord how bad all of this was. And I began to start thinking back about what God had done in my life. I thought back to March the 23rd, 1968. And, and what I began to do, see, was just think back about this dream, this goal that God had put in my heart. And I was ready to check out and give up the whole thing. But as I went back, I stirred myself up by putting me in remembrance. And that's what Peter said over in Second Peter. I think three times in the book of Second Peter, he says, I'm going to stir you up by putting your pure minds into remembrance. And that's what happened. As I began to go back and just think about things, all of a sudden that hope, that goal, that vision, dream that God had originally given me of going out and touching other people's lives and making a difference in people's lives, sharing the truth of God's Word with them. That dream just rose up on the inside of me. And by the time the rest of my family was asleep and I'd planned on having this pity party, I mean, I was encouraged. I was built up once again. My faith was working and I determined that, praise God, I'm not going to quit and give up. I'm going through. And I tell you, it was that hope that acted as an anchor, pulled me right back in, it says in Hebrews 6:19, to the very holy of holies, into the, to the uh, inner part where God dwelt. It drew me right back into that relationship and rekindled those things that God had spoken in my heart. So I want to emphasize, as we start talking about this, that having a goal, a vision, a dream, a hope, a purpose for your life is something that you've got to have. You've got to have it. If you don't, if you are just simply, well, I think I'll try this. We were created. You did not evolve. God has a purpose and a design in your life. And if you haven't found it yet, there's no way you can fulfill it until, first of all, you get a revelation of what God has for you. We need to define greatness or success from a biblical attitude and not look at it from a carnal attitude. If you don't, Satan may make some of you think that, well, you don't have much that you can contribute. But every one of us has something that we can contribute. First Corinthians chapter 12 talks about that. And once again, I need to move on because there's so much that we could say on just this one area. Let me also say this, that you need to make sure that the dreams that you have are godly dreams, that they originated with God. Now, this is really important because I, some of the people that I minister to, I believe, are frustrated because their goals and ambitions, their desires are not being fulfilled. And the Scripture says very clearly in uh, Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12, it says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. 
Now the scripture there is using the word hope and desire interchangeably in that verse. And many people today are discouraged, frustrated. I mean, they are just depressed, ready to quit and give up because their hope has been deferred. Well, now you're going to experience a certain amount of that even if you've got godly dreams and hopes. And so you have to know how to, to work through that, and that's what we're dealing with on this tape. But also, you need to make sure that the dreams you have originated with God, that they aren't simply your desires and you're trying to ask God to bless your plans. That is not good. And yet so many people do that. As I talk to people, I find out that the things that they're pressing for, for instance, they're just pushing for more money, a new house, a new car, things oriented. The Bible teaches against that. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. The scripture says in Matthew chapter 6 that we should not seek after housing and clothes and what we should eat, etc., but we should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then these things will be added unto us. It's not that God minds us having things. God desires for us to prosper. It says in Psalms chapter 35, verse 27, God wants us. He delights in the prosperity of his servant, but he doesn't want us to be seeking after those things. Those are not the kind of goals that I'm talking about. I'm talking about a goal, a vision, a dream, a desire that comes from God. God's purpose for your life. What did God create you for? What are your special gifts and talents? And again, some of you may think, I don't have any gifts or talents. Every last one of us do. Every last one of us have something that you can contribute that no one else can contribute. You know, that little boy in the sixth chapter of John that had his five loaves and two fish that he brought to that meeting Jesus was conducting. You know, most people would have looked at him and have thought, well, this is just a little boy. What can he contribute to such a great need? They had over 5,000 men, not including women and children there, who were hungry and fainting. They were so hungry. Something had to be done. They didn't have enough money to go buy food. There wasn't enough uh, food in the towns round about to feed them. They were wanting what to do, and it looked like that this little boy had not much at all to give. But he gave what he had, his five loaves and two fish, and when God took it and blessed it and multiplied, it fed the multitude. This boy, who most people would have considered insignificant, and his contribution was vastly inadequate to the task, God took it and multiplied it. Little is much when God is in it. And so the point I'm making through this is every one of us do have talents, desires, ability that we can give. And if we give it to God, then God can use it and accomplish something great through you. So every one of us have those things. How do we know whether our desires are God-given desires or whether they're simply our own thinking and we're trying to get God to bless something that he's not inclined to bless? How do we know this? Well, Psalms chapter 37 says in verse 4, it says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. Now remember this scripture that I used out of Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12. It says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. And it used hope and desire interchangeably. So in the context of what we're talking about, this hope, this dream, he's saying here that when you delight yourself also in the Lord, he shall give you the desires of your heart. Now, this is not talking about that whatever it is that you want, God will give it to you. I've heard peop people use this scripture to claim Cadillacs, ca uh, houses, all kinds of things, and they say, well, God said he'd give me the desires of my heart. 
Well, see, that's not what this verse is saying, and you can prove that going back to James chapter 4 where it says there that you lust and kill and desire to have, and yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you might consume it upon your own lust. Now, that scripture there is making it clear that you are not just going to receive whatever you lust for. It has to be a godly desire. So this scripture is not saying that anything you desire, God will give it to you. This scripture is saying that when you delight yourself in the Lord, that is, when you make Jesus the first thing in your life, you're seeking to please Him more than you're seeking to please yourself. You are seeking God's will above everything else. When that attitude develops in a person, then the desires that come into a person's heart come from God. God is controlling the desire process in a person is what that's talking about. That's not saying that ungodly desires will be granted by God, but rather when a person is seeking after God, all of their desires will be godly desires. They will originate with God. Well, that's a tremendous statement. And anyway, this is the way to tell whether your dreams are from God or not. Are you really delighting yourself in the Lord? And if you would just really sit down, and it'll take time for you to discern. It may, take a, it may take a day, a week, or a month for a person to really just separate themselves from all of their own things that they're doing. They're, we get so preoccupied with things. You may have to set aside some time to fast and to pray and get in the presence of God and purify yourself. But the Bible says that the heart knows its own bitterness. In other words, you really know what's in your heart if you'll stop long enough to settle down and get in tune with what's really going on. And you know in your heart whether you're really seeking God or not. And this is something that I use quite a bit to discern God's direction. I have all kinds of thoughts and desires come to me. And just because it's good doesn't mean it's God. I mean, it's good to share the gospel with every single person. But did you know, if I was to go out tomorrow and contract with a 1,000 radio stations and, and 500 television stations and go on them... I guarantee you, my faith just isn't to a place. I don't believe God would bless that. I would become a, uh, uh, I'd be in bankruptcy in a very short period of time. I'd ruin what God's given me to do, and I just know that that's not the way that God wants me to do it. See, I don't have any peace. That's not a desire in my heart. And yet, God did tell me that eventually we are going to cover this nation through radio and television. I know it's coming to pass. It is going to come to pass, but right now I just don't have faith for all of that. So what I do, see, I quiet myself, I get still, and I just ask myself, is this really uh, a desire from God? And the way I discern that is, God, have I really been seeking you? Is my heart, do I have a confidence that I'm really uh, in tune with you and walking in the Spirit and listening to your voice? And I'll be able to tell whether I am or whether I'm not. And if I am seeking after God, and if I am confident that, Lord, I have been fellowshipping with you, you've spoken to me, I can see the proof of all of these things, and uh, if I'm confident of those kind of things, and if the thoughts, the desires that I'm having do not contradict the word in any place, well, then I will believe that that desire that I'm having in my heart came from God. And I'll do that because I have been delighting myself in the Lord, and he said he'd give me the desires of my heart. So I honestly let God shine his light on me. I... I let God bear witness, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I don't get any of those checks, reservations about it, well, then I go with it, and I found that to be God's will. 
So we can discern whether the dreams that we have come from God or whether they are simply of our own choosing. And you've got to make these discernments before we can ever move on talking about how to make your dreams come true. So it is super important that we do have a goal, a dream, a vision for our life. It's very important that we discern that these goals and dreams come from God and are simply not our own doing. Now what I'd like to do to begin to explain about how to persevere and see these dreams come to pass is go back to the scripture and take some examples. Specifically, I want to use Joseph as an example. And this is found over in Genesis chapter 37. And Joseph is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. This man went through probably as much adversity as any single Bible character did. And yet he came out on top. So it is a tremendous success story. And yet, Joseph, there is no mention in Scripture. God never rebuked him. There is no mention of character flaws in his life. And that's not to say that he didn't have any. But I'm saying that he is one of the most faithful men recorded in the Word of God. You can find in Moses' life where Moses got angry and did things that uh, cost him 40 years in the wilderness. And even after that experience, he still got angry and smote the rock when God told him to speak to it. He became self-willed, and God dealt severely with that. Uh, You can find David, a tremendous man of God that was used by God, and yet he failed big time, committed adultery and murdered to cover it up. Abraham also got into the flesh, and yet these men still saw God's will come to pass. And so that's an encouragement. But Joseph is one that the Bible does not record him getting into the flesh. He is like a model example of how to persevere through adversity and see his dreams come to pass. So in Genesis chapter 37, we find the example of Joseph. And in verse 5, it says that Joseph dreamed a dream and he told it his brethren and they hated him yet the more. Now the scripture previous to this, it said that Joseph was his father's favorite son and that his father had made a special coat for him, a coat of many colors, just to show that uh, how much honor he bestowed upon Joseph. And there was jealousy on his brother's part, and they hated him because of this. And so after he had this dream and told it to his brothers, they hated him even the more. And he told them his dream and said, Here, I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose, and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheep. Now this was his dream, and the interpretation of it is very clear by their reaction. In verse 8, his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. So this dream and the interpretation of it was evident that this was God telling Joseph that he was going to prosper and succeed as a ruler even to the point that his brothers would come and bow down to him. And, of course, his brothers hated this and persecuted it all persecuted him over it in verse 9 joseph had a second dream and this time he told it to his brethren and he said behold i have dreamed a dream more and behold the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me and this time when his father heard about it his father made it very clear that all of these people understood this dream what the interpretation of it was and um here's what his father said his father rebuked him and said What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? So the moon and the sun was talking about Joseph's father and mother and the eleven stars talking about Joseph's eleven brethren. 
And so the dream was a different dream, but it was the same interpretation that Joseph was going to rule and even have his father, mother, and brothers come bow down to him. Now, this was a prophecy from God about Joseph being exalted above even his father and mother and his brethren. And, of course, it didn't set well with his brothers at all. But this is what we are talking about. Joseph got a dream from the Lord. In this case, it happened to be a literal dream, but it's a vision, a purpose, a goal, a hope that God placed in Joseph's heart and told him what he was going to do with his life. And from that moment on, Joseph held on to those dreams. It also says that even after Joseph's father had rebuked him, it says in verse 11 that his brothers envied him, but his father observed the same. In other words, his father rebuked him. It didn't make sense to his natural mind, but in his heart there was something that touched him, and he observed it. You know, this is exactly the same teaching, the same terminology that was used about Mary, the mother of Jesus, when the angel spoke to her and told her all of these things, and when they went to bring Jesus into the temple and have him circumcised, and Anna and Simeon came and prophesied about Jesus, it said that she observed all of these things in her heart. And uh, we know the results of that, that, of course, she recognized there was something special about Jesus. Well, Joseph's father recognized there was something special about Joseph, and even though he verbally rebuked him in his heart, he observed the same. So God planted a dream in Joseph's heart. In this instance, he was 17 years old. We can see that by going back to verse 2 in Genesis chapter 37. Joseph was 17 years old, and God planted this dream or vision in his heart. Now, I'm sad to say that just because a dream or a vision, God's purpose for us is revealed to us, that does not mean that everything is smooth sailing from then on. Instead, when Joseph began to recount these visions, this dream to his brother and then to his father, there was rejection that came along with it. And this is something that we need to uh, recognize, that when we get a vision from the Lord, when God gives us a purpose for our life and lights a fire on the inside of us, there is a natural tendency in us to go out and just begin to start telling everybody. I mean, we are so excited, we are so blessed that we want everybody to be as blessed as we are. So we start telling them what God has planned for our lives, what God wants to do in our lives. And did you know that immediately when that happens, the normal reaction is rejection. People will come down on you, begin to criticize you. Everything will go contrary to the way you thought it was going to go. And what this does to most people, or many people, it causes them to despair because they aren't totally rooted and grounded. They aren't sure in themselves of what God has spoken to them before they go out and tell everybody else. And the other people's rejection of the idea causes us to waver in our own steadfastness. And we wonder, is this really God? And I'd say that a large percentage, probably a majority of people, never make it beyond this testing stage, this very first test that comes, and that is what do other people think about this vision or dream? You need to reach a place where it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, to let God be true and every man a liar. 
If we're going to really succeed with God, we're going to have to get to a place to where God's word to us is sufficient. It doesn't have to be confirmed through public opinion, what anybody else thinks. If God said it, I'm going to hold on to it until all hell freezes over if I have to. You have to get exactly that determined. You have to get to where it is God's vision, his word to you that counts, not what everybody else thinks about it. Because I can guarantee you that when you start sharing what God has put in your heart, the very first thing you're going to experience is other people discrediting it and telling you that's not of God. That's exactly what happened with Joseph here, and I believe that it happens with everybody. You go back to scriptural examples, and if you look at Moses, Moses came out and he went out and killed the Egyptian, thinking that he was going to bring deliverance to the Jews. And you can see that by putting together uh, Exodus chapter 2 with uh, Acts chapter 7, and it says there in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was speaking through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, that when Moses killed that Egyptian, it says he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. Moses was supposing that other people would share his vision, and yet they didn't understand. And the next day he went out and tried to correct two Hebrews who were striving together, and one of them says, Are you going to kill me as you, tried to, as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And they said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? In other words, they rejected his vision. They rejected his dream. They didn't share it. And Moses was not secure and stable in it. He got into fear and he ran. And, of course, he persevered through those things and eventually was mightily used of God. But this is something that happens every time a person begins to start sharing what God has given them is other people are going to reject it. And we really don't need to think it's strange concerning us when, when this happens. Out of 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse 15, the scripture there says, To not think it strange concerning the fire. Excuse me, this is 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. The first thing you've got to do is, after God puts a vision in your heart, you've got to be prepared for other people's rejection. You've got to recognize that God didn't give the vision to them. He gave it to you. I've seen a lot of women when I counsel with them and they get born again and turned on to the Lord and they just think, man, this is great. Now I've got God in my heart and they are so excited. They go to sharing with their husband what has happened and how that they now want their marriage to be better than ever. They're going to walk in love, etc. And instead of the husband enjoying it and receiving it, and of course this could work the other way. It could be the same thing with the wife rejecting a husband. But when, instead of the husband accepting and receiving this vision, he gets angry and bitter, and he, he would like it back the way it was before. And the woman is all frustrated at this and saying, Man, I just can't understand what happened. Well, the Scripture here says not to think it's strange concerning these fiery trials that come at us. It's not the husband that got changed. It was a wife that got changed. And we need to be patient until God does a work in their heart. It's the same thing as you share your vision with other people. You need to recognize that it's not necessarily them just uh, hating you. It's that they just don't have the same perspective. God hasn't spoken the same thing to their heart. He gave the vision to you. And there will come a time that God will begin to bear witness in other people's hearts, but it's not going to be immediately. I know that in March the 23rd, 1968, the Lord intervened in my life supernaturally. And it transformed me. And I got so excited that I told everybody everything that God was telling me. 
And it's not really wisdom to do that. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do it because, praise God, there's a lot of people that in that kind of a zeal have led others to the Lord just by their excitement and their total abandonment to the Lord. And so I'm not saying that it's totally wrong, but we usually don't use the wisdom that we should, and we wind up causing some problems, making some problems for ourselves. And I know that I did that. I know that after I got really turned on to the Lord, my mother didn't talk to me for over two months. And it wasn't because my mother didn't love me. She just didn't understand. I quit school, which meant that I was going to lose a government subsidy that I was getting from uh, Social Security from my father's death per month. I was immediately going to be drafted. I was going to go to Vietnam. Also, if, you know, if God doesn't tell you supernaturally not to go to school, then uh, how are you going to prepare and be what God wants you to be? And there was just a lot of negative things that she didn't understand. And it hurt her so much that uh, for about two months she just didn't talk to me. And, I mean, it was a problem. And as I look back on it, my thinking at the time was I just didn't understand why she didn't share my vision. But, see, she didn't share the experience that I had March the 23rd, 1968, when God supernaturally intervened in my heart. Since that time, the Lord did speak to my mother, and the Lord has confirmed some things, and she now works with me, and I tell you, we're just in agreement, and she's totally behind what we're doing. But I'm saying, as I look back, I can see that it, it shouldn't have surprised me. It shouldn't have hurt me when other people didn't share my vision because God didn't give it to them. And we see this exact same thing happening with Joseph. His brethren hated him because he said he was going to prosper and be used in a position of authority over them. They hated that. And they fought against him, even to the point that they lied and told Joseph's father that he had been killed by a beast and took his robe and tore it to pieces, put lamb's blood on it, and then they sold him into slavery to some people going down into Egypt. And so Joseph immediately experienced rejection. I'm sure that it caused confusion. But one of the things that it did, it made him put his focus on God only. He could not look to man to verify his calling. He lost his family. He lost everything. There was no natural circumstance or surrounding that was confirming to him that he was on track. He had to go back and hold on to this dream that God had put in his heart. And brothers and sisters, I can guarantee you that there is going to be a time just exactly like that when we have to go back and just hold on to the word of God that's been spoken unto us. If you go back to the parable in Mark chapter 4, this talks about the word of God being sown in our heart, and it says that when the word is sown immediately, Satan comes to steal away the word that's been sown in our heart. And in verse 17 and 18, the scripture says that Satan does it with afflictions and persecutions coming against us for the word's sake. That's exactly what Joseph experienced. Joseph had Satan unleash on him. He was afflicted. He was persecuted. He was lied about. He was sold into slavery totally unjustly. Did you know that when you suffer for something that you did wrong, that doesn't necessarily feel good, but it's easier to take that than when you feel you've been unjust, unjustly persecuted. Because, see, you feel justice is on your side then, and, boy, it just hurts you that much deeper when you feel that you've been unjustly condemned. Well, see, Joseph was totally unjustly condemned. And Satan was trying to steal the word, that dream, that vision away from him because Satan had a plan of lives. He was trying to stop God's people from coming into a nation. And if this famine would have persisted, it's possible that he could have wiped out uh, Israel and all of his children or damaged them and prolonged the plan of God for years and years. 
Satan had an attack. He had a plan. Stop that vision that God had given Joseph from coming to pass. It was Satan fighting against him. We need to recognize this, that the opposition that comes into our life, it's not just normal, it's not just natural, it's Satan coming against the Word. We need to be prepared for it. You don't need to glory in it, you don't need to pray for it, but when it comes, don't be surprised by it. Don't be caught off guard. Be prepared that Satan is going to try and stop your dreams from coming true. Boy, that is such an important step. The very first thing that happens to come against your dreams is this rejection by other people. Public opinion set against you, and it has to, we have to purify ourselves and go on and get to a place to where I am not going to move to the right or to the left, go by what other people said. If God said it, that is the only one I'm seeking to please. That's a very important first step. So Joseph was sold into slavery. He went down into a foreign land where he, I'm sure, went through the feelings, the emotions of loneliness, rejection, hurt, probably wondering what are his brothers going to tell his father. There was all of these things that would have happened to us. The same thing happened to Joseph. He had to work through those things. Plus, he was also in a land that spoke a foreign language. There's no instance in Scripture that would make us believe that he had already learned the Egyptian language. Later, he did. So he had not only the rejection, the hurt uh, from his own brothers that he was dealing with, he used to be a free man, a position of honor in his father's house. Now he was a slave. He lost his freedom, which would have crushed many people right there. But he also had to cope with not being able to communicate with other people. He had to learn a language. He was put in hard, hard situations. And it was enough that many people would have despaired. Many people would have thought, well, man, if this is what happens by me telling what God has put on my the call that he's put on my life and what God's given me, well, then I think I'll just back up and go the other direction. Well, see, if Joseph would have quit right then, it would have been true that so far God's intervention in his life would have caused nothing but problems. But see, that wasn't the end of the story. The end result, God's intervention in your life, God placing a call on your life is always, always, always for your best. Somehow or another, people have developed this theology that if I really yield myself to God... God's going to send me to the darkest corner of Africa. He's going to put me in some God-forsaken, mosquito-infested place. It's going to be terrible. My wife and kids are going to die. We aren't going to have any food. We won't have any money, etc. Brothers and sisters, that's not so. If God did send you to some place like that, He would also change your desires so that for you that would be the most glorious place on the face of the earth. Now, I'm not saying that God won't lead us to do some things that are hard on the flesh, but if we really continue on, we will eventually have our desires changed to where we enjoy doing the will of God. We will get to a place to where the end result is going to be total victory. And we need to persevere through some hard times. When I first got called into the ministry, I guarantee you, I nearly starved to death. That wasn't God's plan for me, but because I didn't know everything that I know now, I went through some hard times financially. We had a lot of rejection. A lot of people came out against us. And there were times that I literally had to close my eyes and to keep from looking at the situation. I had to shout at the top of my lungs to keep my brain from operating, and I had to just operate out of my heart and go by the vision God put in my heart because I guarantee you it was enough to make ten men quit. And I had to persevere through those things. So did Joseph. So did David. So did Abraham. So did Moses. So did all of these people that God has used.
You know, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verses 5 and 11, the scriptures there say that all of these things happen to these Old Testament men for our examples upon whom the ends of the world are come so that we can learn through them. You know, the same things that happen to them will be going on in our life, and we don't have to just be taken by surprise. We can see how they reacted to it. We can see the end result of it, and praise God, we can use these things to build our faith and help us maintain stability when we're going through a hard time. You need to recognize that instead of things getting better when God plants a dream in your heart, they may momentarily get worse. Now, that's something that a lot of people are not excited about, but it's a truth. And you can see it once again in the lives of these men that I've already mentioned. I could give personal testimony to it. The Scripture says, Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial that's to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. In other words, it's going to happen. The moment God puts a call on your life, He has just moved you to the front lines. And I guarantee you the fighting gets hotter on the front lines. You're going to be more apt to be shot at on the front lines. Satan is going to come against you. Did you know in my life today, Satan is fighting against me stronger than he's ever fought against me. The stronger I get in the Lord doesn't mean that there's less opposition. The opposition always continues to increase, but you just get stronger to where even though there's more opposition, you still are more victorious than you've ever been because you're trusting in the Lord and God's fighting your battles for you. So one of the things you need to recognize is when you get this dream that there is going to come a testing period where Satan comes out against you. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, I believe it's verse 35 or right around there, verse 32, it says that once you were enlightened, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Now that scripture is saying that once God enlightens you, gives you a revelation, once a truth is planted in your heart, you endure a great fight of afflictions. And it, and it puts it, it, the way it states it, it says once you're enlightened, when you are first enlightened, when that revelation comes is when this great fight of afflictions comes. I believe that Satan, you know, has things planned out for each one of us, how he's going to try to destroy us. And when he sees a person all of a sudden getting hold of the Word of God, when he sees the power of God beginning to operate in him, I believe that Satan just literally calls into being everything he's got planned for you for a year or two years or whatever in advance He'll try and just blast you with the total charge all at one time. The reason being that when you first are enlightened is when you are your weakest. It's when you're the most susceptible to doubt. After you've got a few victories under your belt and you've, you've proven the thing and you're seeing it work, well, your faith just begins to build. So Satan, out of self-defense, will call his demons from other assignments and just literally throw everything he's got against you, trying to get you to back off of the word. And once again, that goes along with Mark chapter 4. If you don't have a teaching on Mark chapter 4, I've got a tape entitled, The Sower Sows the Word, that is powerful in this area, and it would really, really be a blessing to you. So Satan fights against you. We need to be prepared. We don't need to be surprised by it. Praise God, we can profit from the things that we see happening here in Joseph and all of these other people's lives. And so Joseph... Uh, he spoke forth his faith and suffered for it, lost his freedom, became a slave in Potiphar's house. But one of the things that allowed Joseph to persevere through all of these things is that Joseph had a revelation that God was with him. Now, the Scripture doesn't really give us very much dialogue from Joseph's standpoint, but we can see by the outcome and the way that Joseph uh, prospered 
even through this time of slavery and being put in the, in the dungeon, we know from Scripture that those things would not have happened if Joseph would have renounced his faith in God, if he would have been in bitterness and griping and complaining. It doesn't work that way. The Bible says in, in Ephesians 3.20 that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. In other words, God flows through us. He doesn't just do things independent of us. We have to cooperate with God. And if there had not been cooperation on Joseph's part, he would not have prospered through this. So we can see from that that Joseph was maintaining his faith and his belief in what God had spoken unto him, and he persevered through this situation. In the 39th chapter of the book of Genesis, it talks about when Joseph was sold into slavery, and it says in verse 2, Genesis 39, 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Well, that's an amazing statement. Did you know if you would have looked at things from a human standpoint, some people could have actually gone to a course to a court of law and have proven that God had forsaken Joseph. Because, I mean, here he was before these dreams came into his life, before God intervened and gave him a purpose, and before Joseph began to head in that direction, Joseph was prospering. Joseph was the favorite son of his father over 12 children altogether, 12 sons. Joseph was the most favorite. He had a special coat. He had an inheritance. He was blessed. He was free. He had all of these things going for him. But it looked like from the human standpoint that God had forsaken him. I mean, he lost his inheritance. He lost his family. He was ridiculed by the very people that he loved. He was beaten. He was sold into slavery. He was forsaken, lied about. His father thought that he had been killed. I mean, you could have proven to most people that God wasn't with him, and yet the Scripture says God was with him. And I believe that Joseph was able to perceive that. One thing you've got to do when you have a vision from God and Satan begins to start his fight against you trying to steal that vision, you've got to maintain in the face of circumstances, in the face of all opposition, that God is with me and greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. You've got to maintain that constant that you are not forsaken of God. And I tell you, I'm really speaking to myself. I know that I'm speaking to some of you because I can remember times when it just looked like that God wasn't within a 100 miles of me. And yet here I was telling people that I was doing what God had called me to do. I was standing on the word. We were going to prosper. I was preaching prosperity to other people and myself. I was suffering financially. I was preaching victory to other people, and there was times that I just had to struggle to keep my head above water and keep from drowning. And there was times that I, I know my own thought life. Satan tried to tell me, you're nothing but a hypocrite. It's not working. God has forsaken you. And the devil would tell me, you look around, prove, show me anything that shows that God's prosperity is in your life. And there were times in my life, brother and sister, where I didn't have a shred of evidence. All I had was that witness in my heart. You know, Joseph was in a situation similar to that, that somebody could have talked him out of the fact that God was with him, but Joseph held on to this fact that God was with him. And because of his faithfulness, Joseph was promoted even in Potiphar's house and became head over everything. He actually got put into a position that wasn't a slave position. He got put into a position uh, that was like the administrator over all of Potiphar's house. He had over all of his treasury, over everything that he had. And so he began to succeed. He began to succeed. And you know, some people will go through one hard time, and as they see the Word begin to produce, they will again get their faith back. They'll stand. But when a, 
if that got pulled out from under them, it would just be more than some people could take. Well, Joseph, after he succeeded, once again was persecuted. He had Potiphar's wife try and seduce him, and because he refused to submit to her, she lied about him and said that he'd come in to rape her, told Potiphar these things, and Potiphar didn't apparently get any explanation from Joseph or didn't care to hear, and he threw Joseph into the dungeon. And Joseph could have quit. He could have given up right then. But I tell you, you've got to get to a position that I am not going to quit regardless of what comes my way. I'm going to fight until my last breath. If I'm alive, I'm going to stand and I'm going to believe what God has spoken to me. You know, brothers and sisters, some of the things I'm saying, these are powerful truths. And yet most Christians today don't have that kind of determination. They don't have that type of character built in them because they certainly didn't learn it out in the world. And sad to say, sometimes in our churches, we really aren't preaching this type of commitment and dedication. But it is there. I guarantee you God will witness it to you. God will work these traits in your life. Joseph was just a young man when these things happened to him, 17 years old, and yet he remained faithful through this to prove that he had a knowledge that God was with him. When Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him, here's what Joseph said to his wife. He said there, this is to, Joseph said to Potiphar's wife, There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath uh, he, speaking of Potiphar, kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now see, he, he didn't say sin against Potiphar. It would have been a sin against Potiphar, but it also would have been a sin against God. Joseph was con- conscious that God was with him, that God was watching and beholding everything that he was doing. And that may sound like a very simple principle right there, but did you know I've seen firsthand, like when I was in Vietnam, people who back in the States were very moral people, would have never gone out and committed adultery on their wife, would not have gotten drunk, would not have done certain things. But in Vietnam, because they were under pressure circumstances themselves, because they felt forsaken, because it was a negative experience, and also because they knew that nobody would ever know what they did. I saw some people go and do things that they would have never done back in the States. In other words, they did not have this consciousness that God was with them. They thought, well, my wife will never know. They thought, well, these other people will never know what I really have done, what I'm like. But see, that's not true. Joseph had a knowledge that God was with him. You've got to develop this consciousness that the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. And even when circumstances are telling you that God has forsaken you, you cannot go by that. You've got to hold on to that God has not forsaken me. So Joseph was cast into the prison, but in Genesis chapter 39, verse 21, it says the Lord was with Joseph even in the prison. And once again, he began to prosper in the prison, and he was promoted again to a position where he was in charge over the entire prison. The jailer didn't even know what was going on. He committed everybody unto Joseph's hand. Now, we can also see another tremendous principle in this. Not only did Joseph know that God was with him, and I believe that became one of the, the things that granted him stability and the ability to stand, but I also believe that Joseph was faithful even in these hard times. And this is so easy to say and yet so hard to do. There are principles in God's Word. Over in Matthew chapter 25, The scripture there, Jesus was teaching a parable, and he taught about these people who were given different talents or different amounts of money. And then he left and came back and had them give an answer of what they had done. And to the people who took the money and used it wisely, 
He said, because you were faithful over a few things, I'll make you ruler over much. And he, re- he revealed a principle there that God gives us uh, responsibility according to our faithfulness. Now, that could be explained a lot more. Uh, here again in Luke chapter 16 is another scripture that goes along with it. He says in verse 10, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? When God places a call on a person's life, it doesn't matter if it's a call to ministry or if it's a call to business or a call to just anything, you've got to prove yourself faithful. And you start off being faithful in small things before you become faithful in big things. And this is where a lot of people lose their vision and are never promoted and never see those dreams that God has given them come to pass because they aren't faithful in small things. They're waiting until the really big test, and then they're going to be faithful. You know, when it comes to the ministry, I've talked to probably hundreds of people who felt a call of God on their life, and they came and talked to me about how do they get to doing it, how do they get these worldwide ministries that God has put in their heart. What do they do? And every time I'll start off, well, what are you doing right now? Well, nothing. Nothing's opened up. I've tried to go out and do this and do that. And what I start telling them every single time is, what about witnessing to your family? What about just becoming active in a church and taking the nursery if that's all that they've got open and being faithful in that situation? What about witnessing on your job? What about the street corners? Man, there's lots of people right there. And did you know that the vast majority of times those people will say, but... That's not what I feel called to do. I'm supposed to have a big ministry and hold meetings and thousands of people come to my meetings. But see, it doesn't start that way. Nobody starts that way. Nobody just starts off with their ministry full-blown. You come into it in stages. It's a godly principle. We can see it in the lives of every single person in the Word of God. You grow into ministry. You don't just get plucked into ministry. You grow into it. And if you refuse to be faithful in a few things, you'll never be able to make it in the big things. Now, somebody says, I don't know if I like that or not. Why did God do it that way? I really believe that God did that for our own benefit. Because the pressures that come on us when we get put in the front lines, I mean out there on the point, man, fighting the devil in a big-time ministry, the pressures that come against you, if you haven't already proven yourself, if you haven't been trained well and held up well under training, you're going to get killed. And I believe God did it for our own benefit. You know, he said over in First Timothy chapter 3, talking about elders, he says that they should not be a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, they come into the condemnation of the devil. The Lord said we have to be proven when you're in a position of leadership. And it's the same thing coming into any call that God has placed on a person's life. Any dream that you have of obtaining victory in some area, there are going to be steps and stages to it. Learn to be faithful right where you are right now. And that will provide you with a stepping stone to the next step and the next, etc., and on and on. If you are going to wait until you see your great opportunity before you really become faithful, you'll never see that great opportunity come your way. Another example of this is David. And, of course, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he was anointed to be king over the nation of Israel. He was just out there with the sheep, and God singled him out out of an entire family and anointed him to be king over the nation of Israel. But Saul was the reigning king at that time. 
And so we find in the 17th chapter where David went out and fought with Goliath. The armies of Israel had come together to fight with the Philistines, but the Philistines sent out Goliath, the giant. He was, by some people's estimation, 9 to 11 feet tall. And he was uh, an imposing figure. He's put fear into the hearts of the Israelites, and they fled before him. Well, in that situation, David went down. He was singled out. He went out and fought with Goliath. And, of course, he won the battle, cut his head off without even having a, a sword in his hand. He used a slingshot and used Goliath's own sword to cut his head off. A tremendous story of success and victory. But did you know that when David was first speaking to people and saying, Why are the Israelites afraid of this uncircumcised Philistine? Well, the word came to Saul about this. And so Saul called for David. And Saul talked to David and he says, What makes you think that you can go out against this Philistine? He says, You're only a little kid. You're a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. And here's what David said unto Saul. He said, Saul, thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. Now David there told us why he had confidence to go out and fight Goliath. Why? Because he, when he kept his father's sheep, just a little flock of sheep on the back side of the desert nobody was watching there wasn't thousands of people watching him then the way they were watching when he went out and fought goliath i mean in a seemingly insignificant situation where nobody would have blamed david if he would have forsaken those sheep because i mean a lion and a bear it's not worth risking your life just for the sake of one silly sheep see that's the way many people thought but david was faithful in little things he was faithful with that little job he had of keeping his father's sheep, even to the point that he was willing to lay down his life and lose it all right there if he had to, to be faithful over what God had given him. Because he was faithful in a few things, God made him ruler over much. Because he was faithful when nobody was watching, when it would have been easy to walk away, he had an experience under his belt. He had seen the power of God operate, and he was able to go against Goliath. If he hadn't have been faithful in those other things, he wouldn't have had any confidence when it came to fighting Goliath. But see, he had already put the power of God to the test in his life. This is a lesson that we can learn, and we can learn it through David. We can learn it through everybody, especially this example we're using of Joseph. Joseph was faithful. He was faithful to God in Potiphar's house. He was faithful to God even in the dungeon. That man remained faithful, and even though every time he took a step, it looked like it was going backwards or down instead of up, he remained faithful. He served God. If you get into bitterness, if you get into griping and complaining, I guarantee you it's going to destroy you, not somebody else. Joseph could have blamed everybody else. You know, if anybody had the right to complain, I believe it was Joseph. He was unfairly, he was treated unfairly all the way around. And yet there is no mention in Scripture that Joseph was bitter. Matter of fact, we can find later on over in Genesis chapter 45 or 46 when he was talking to his brethren and explaining what happened unto them. He told his brethren in, in Genesis 45, 7, he says, God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. 
Joseph there is revealing that he never blamed his brother. He didn't get into bitterness. And I see so many people destroyed by this. You know, the Scripture says that if we let any root of bitterness come in, it will defile many. And this is out of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. If we let bitterness in, it's going to destroy us and also all of the potential people that we could have blessed and, and have prospered through doing what God called us to do. Joseph didn't do that. Joseph remained faithful. Joseph knew that God was with him. Joseph refused to get into bitterness and start blaming somebody else for what was going on in his life. Now, I don't believe that he... I am not saying that God puts all the negative situations in our life. I'm not saying that we should get to a place to where we see that God is doing these things to us. I believe it's Satan that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I do believe that we can reach a place to where regardless of what the devil does, God's going to turn around and work it together for good. We can believe that according to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And I believe that Joseph had that knowledge. So the story goes on that Joseph was faithful he ministered to two people in the prison, interpreted their dreams, and he told them that when uh, they were promoted back by Pharaoh to remember him. And the dreams were interpreted that one would live and be restored to his butlership in three days' time, and the other one would uh, be taken by Pharaoh and executed in three days' time. And it came to pass exactly the way Joseph prophesied but the butler did not remember Joseph. He forgot him until two years later. And two years later, Pharaoh had a dream. And in this dream, uh, it was prophesied about years of famine and years of plenty. And, of course, he didn't understand the dream. Nobody could interpret it. Finally, the butler remembered Joseph and had Joseph come and stand before Pharaoh and interpret the dream. And through this, Joseph became head over the entire nation of Egypt, the mightiest nation on the face of the earth at that time. And he became second only unto Pharaoh in power. And this is what Pharaoh said about Joseph. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 41, Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried before him, Bow the knee, and he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or his foot in all the land of Egypt. Boy, that's a tremendous, tremendous statement. So Joseph here was beginning to first time see some real success. But there were some things that he had to do to come into that position. Joseph had to believe that God was with him throughout every one of the trying situations that had come his way. Joseph had to refuse to become bitter, and Joseph had to remain faithful even in small things when he could have complained, and he says that it just isn't working. He remained faithful. He kept serving God, and because of it, he was promoted. Now, in Genesis chapter 41 and verse 46, it says this, And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. If you compare that verse with Genesis 37.2, it says there that Joseph was 17 years old when he received these dreams. That means that it was 13 years from when God spoke to Joseph before Joseph saw the first sign of prosperity and this vision and dream that God had given him come to pass. 
Now, that's an amazing fact in itself. I tell you, our society today has developed a mentality that it's got to be instantaneous. We have instant potatoes, instant tea, instant coffee, instant everything. And I've talked to some people that, you know, have been called into the ministry, and it's now been a full month, and they haven't seen anything happen yet. Well, it doesn't work that way. With Moses, there was 40 years. I don't believe it had to be that long. I've got a tape entitled God's Man, Plan, and Timing that will teach some of these same things from the life of Moses, and it's a powerful teaching. But I believe that God uh, showed Moses his will at least 10 years before Moses could have uh, brought the children of Israel out, and as it turned out, it was 40 years. We find with Abraham, it was 26 years from the time that God spoke to him before he saw those dreams come to pass. We find with David that there was a lapse of time, and I don't know exactly, I'm estimating between 4 and 10 or 11 years before David saw the dream, the anointing that God had given him to be king come to pass over the nations. You can find in the New Testament that uh, Paul was called, it was actually Saul, was converted to Christianity and then called to be an apostle. But it was 14 years after that before he went up and began to start ministering the gospel. So we see that there's a time element in the things of God coming to pass. And a person who has this instant mentality and is waiting for things to happen in the next 20 minutes, uh, that's no patience, and it's simply not going to operate. We could take the life of Joseph and teach also on patience and talk about how important patience is to your faith and how that without patience you will not be perfect and entire wanting nothing, as it says in James chapter 1. So this was 13 years that Joseph waited before he really began to start seeing these dreams come to pass. But remember that the dreams that God had given him was not only that he would rule, but specifically that his father and his brothers would come and bow down to him and recognize and submit to his rulership and authority. Now that hadn't come to pass yet. And here comes one of the greatest characteristics, personality traits of Joseph. I believe one of the main dominant things that actually made him a person that God could use. He came into power when he was 30 years old. And we find that when he finally revealed himself to his brethren and told them who he was, it says in Genesis 45, verse 6, he was talking to his brothers when he finally told them who he was. He said, For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall be neither earing nor harvest. Now Joseph here shows that according to the interpretation of these dreams, which I'm not going into great depth in the story of Joseph, I'm just teaching certain things through it, so you really need to read from chapter 37 all the way through chapter 45 of Genesis to get the full story. But there was prophesied that there would be seven years of plenty and then seven years of drought and famine. The seven years of plenty had already elapsed, and they were into two years of famine. This means that this was nine years after Joseph had been promoted to be head over all of the nation of Egypt. Nine years later is when he finally saw his brothers come bow down to him and he revealed himself to his brothers. Now this says something tremendous to me because what this means is that Joseph, when he came into a position of absolute power where he could have done anything to make the visions that God had given him come to pass, Joseph still did not do anything in his own self to bring about God's dreams in his life. Now what I'm saying is that if this would have been me or you or most of us who are not yet where we're supposed to be, 
I guarantee I could envision myself, maybe I would have remained faithful for 13 years through being a slave, being put in prison, lied about, accused of everything. If I could have remained faithful to that, I really believe that, man, when I became king over the nation, I would have grabbed those armies. I would have gone down to the land of Canaan. I would have surrounded the house of Jacob, and I would have come out and had all of these armies there, and, and I'd have walked up to his brothers, and I'd have said, Boys, bow the knee or else. I'd have made that dream come to pass. Now, I hate to say that because I can see from the Word of God that that is not the best, but I'm just saying that I haven't yet dealt with some things the way that I should. God's still working with me, and many of you would be just exactly the same. You know, a greater test. Boy, I pray you're listening to this. This is one of the most important things I believe that the Lord ever taught me. A greater test of a true character of a person is not adversity, but rather it's prosperity. Now, what I mean by that is that when a person has their back against the wall and say they're facing financial problems or physical problems, health problems, or on and on you can go, any crisis situation... And you're in a position where, I mean, if you don't do something, you're going to die. You are facing imminent disaster. In a situation like that, any person who really has any commitment to God at all will have enough smart to drop everything and seek God and cry out to God. But did you know in a position of prosperity, when it looks like everything is going good, now everything's going your way, you've got power and authority, you can do anything you want to do. Did you know that that is actually a greater test of your character? A person that has their back against the wall will seek God out of desperation. But a person who's really in prosperity, if they seek God, it's because that is really their heart. They could become self-sufficient, self-dependent. To seek God shows a real character on the inside of them. When do most people pray the most? It's when their back's against the wall, not when things are going good. See, we actually are very self-sufficient. And the reason most people pray in a hard time is because they are all of a sudden faced with the fact that I can't do it. And so they, they lose this self-sufficiency and they become God-dependent. But Joseph, one of the things about him that is so evident in this story is that when he became ruler over Egypt, could do anything he wanted to. I mean, the armies of Egypt were at his disposal he didn't lift a finger to send after his brethren, to inform his father what had gone on, to make these dreams come to pass. This shows that Joseph was so God-dependent. He was so humble in the sight of God that he was going to let God bring it to pass. Boy, that's awesome. To me, that is nearly beyond reason. It is beyond human reasoning and human characteristics and personalities, but boy, that is a trait of God. You find that Jesus did the same thing. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels. His disciples even were encouraging him to do something like that to resist. And he said, yet that's not the way that my Father wants to do it. He says, I don't do anything on my own. I only do what I see the Father do. Jesus could have impressed people. When people were mocking him and slapping him on the face and saying, prophesy unto us, who are you? Who am I that has hit you? Tell us. He says, we'll believe. If you'll come down from the cross, did you know Jesus could have done things to make those people bow the knee? But that wasn't God's plan. He couldn't have fulfilled God's will. Jesus was not self-willed. 
And brothers and sisters, this is probably the biggest obstacle to us seeing God's dreams for our life come to pass is the fact that most of us are self-willed. Most of us are very self-sufficient, which you may not class that as pride, but that's what that is. Pride is self-sufficiency. It's self-centeredness. And it can exert itself by thinking that self is better than everybody else, or it can exert itself by thinking that self is worse than everybody else. It's still self-centeredness. That's still pride. And the Bible says God resists the proud out of 1 Peter chapter 5. God resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. God gave grace to Joseph because Joseph was not self-willed. He was not self-sufficient. He didn't operate independent of God, trying to bring God's dreams to pass in his own power. He knew that if it was God's dream, God could bring it to pass. Now, that's not to say that Joseph didn't do some things, but he did it at God's direction, not at his own direction. He didn't do anything in his natural flesh to make those dreams come to pass. He trusted in God and waited on God to do it. Boy, that is tremendous. And I tell you, these things that we've talked about right here, we're dealing more with attitudes now than like just step one through five, what you must do. We're talking about things that must be accomplished in you before your dreams can come to pass. If a person is feeling like, well, why doesn't God use me? Here's a tremendous clue that will always do you well. If we aren't being used, it's because we aren't used to use us more than we desire to be used. It's really out of order for us to be praying, God, use me. The proper thing to pray is, God, here am I. Make me usable. And I can promise you the moment you get usable, God will use you. No reservations. God's eyes are running to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to show himself strong in behalf of those who are perfect in his sight. And that perfect there doesn't mean sinless. It, it means that you're seeking after God, that you've obtained some of these things, that you've humbled yourself before God, that you are yielded to God. That's what he's looking for. It's not a matter of us just going through a few steps and then pushing a button and God, God comes out. God's plan automatically comes to pass in our life. What we need to do is humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and not lean under our own understanding, not trust in our own ability to bring things to pass, but become totally God-dependent. We need to become faithful wherever we are right now and not wait on the big opportunity. We need to take advantage of every single little opportunity. The way up in God's system is down. It's by humbling ourselves. It's by taking the menial task that God gives us right now and being faithful. And God will promote us and commit the true riches to us as we become faithful in the small things that he's given us to do. We've got to guard against becoming bitter and not allow bitterness in because a root of bitterness will spring up and defile us and many other people through it. We can't blame other people. We've got to get like Joseph to where we recognize that God is going to use this. God is going to prosper us. And we need to just go back and hold on to God and hold on to that dream, that vision that he's given us. We've got to know that God is with us. Regardless of what your circumstances are telling you, God is with you. And he's there to cause those dreams and visions that he's placed in your life to come to pass. God is there for you. He's not against you. You've got to believe that. And when circumstances are telling you that God has forsaken you, go back to the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, where Jesus said that I will never leave you nor forsake you. You remind yourself of that. And if you will do this, if you will commit yourself to let God be true 
Every man a liar. Not be surprised when everybody else does not understand your vision. Don't let public opinion dictate to you what God's will for you is. If you'll do those things and take this example, like we talked about out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where these things happen for our example so that we can benefit and prosper through this. If you'll do this and let God work these character traits in you, I promise you that those dreams that God has placed in your heart will come to pass. Praise the Lord. Father, I pray with these people who have listened to this teaching today, and I'm asking you, Father, for each one of us that you make application of these scriptural principles to our life. To every person right now who you've spoken to, who you've called them to something, you've given them a dream, a vision in their heart of succeeding and glorifying you with their life. And yet, people haven't understood it. Father, I'm asking you that right now they wouldn't get off of the track and run into the grandstands to argue with people. But, Father, give them the wisdom to just keep on the track, to keep looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher, and stay in the race and quit being moved by what other people think. Father, I'm asking you that right now you help these people to recognize that you're with them. And it doesn't matter who else isn't with them, you're with them. And that you would encourage them with that, that you will never leave them nor forsake them so that they can boldly say that the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do unto me. Father, I ask you to speak that to them right now. I'm asking you, Father, that you would help these people not to become bitter over the people that have hurt them over the people that maybe intentionally or unintentionally have come to just destroy this vision that you've placed in their heart. Let them see that it's not that person they're fighting. It's the devil. It's spiritual wickedness. Help them to turn that anger on the devil. And, Father, help them to just get back into walking in your love and recognizing, Father, that you can work it all together for good. I ask you, Father, to do that. Help these people to be faithful. Father, work that characteristic on the inside of us that we will be faithful wherever we are. Father, help us to look at wherever we are, even if we're in the dungeon, even if we're in the pits, if we're in slavery, if people have lied about us and accused us of all kinds of ungodly things. Father, help us to take where we are and see a positive opportunity in it to serve you. Help us to find ourselves faithful in serving you, regardless of the circumstances. I thank you for that, Father. And I ask you for all of us that you'd help us to humble ourselves so that even in a situation where we now have enough power and authority that we could go out and in the flesh try and accomplish your will, help us, Father, to become so God-dependent that we won't do anything without your counsel, without being led and directed by you. Help us, Father, to be totally God-dependent instead of self-sufficient. Help us to humble ourselves so that we can receive grace instead of having you oppose us. And Father, I thank you. We believe that this is your will and we take these teachings to heart. We ask the Holy Ghost to bring these things back to our remembrance whatsoever you've spoken unto us. And Father, help this word to continue to work these virtues in our life until we see these dreams come true. And we thank you for it. We agree together and receive that in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, 80934. 
Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.